Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and welcome to podcast number 10 of the 2019 hurricane season. Here along with Luke Doris, we've got a busy week underway here. We do the heartbeat of the tropics. It's uh, it's alive and kicking in Tropical Storm Dorian, of course, all the headlines today. And we'll talk uh, all about that here in just a moment. Today, you're going to meet Leslie Chapman Henderson. Leslie runs an organization called Flash the Federal Alliance for Safe Homes, and they have come up with some of the most famous safety lines like Turn Around, Don't Drown, and Hurricane Strong, and they're working on building codes now. And we're going to talk to uh, Leslie about her work and how that pertains to everybody that lives in the hurricane zone and actually lives in the country because they they do uh, safety work for everybody in the United States and have all kinds of ideas to, to really make life better and uh, help us deal with natural disasters better. So we'll talk with Leslie Chapman Henderson in, in just a few minutes. Flash is the most prominent and aggressive organization I know of dedicated to uh, building better homes and stronger communities. So uh, stay, uh, stay with us for that. We're recording this on Tuesday, August 27, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune into Local 10, or check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 Weather app for current information because things are going to change, guaranteed here this week uh, in the state of Florida uh, as uh, Tropical Storm Dorian kind of gets itself organized. So this has been an uh, an exercise here the last few days just to figure out how to communicate Dorian once it became apparent that there was really a threat to Florida. Yeah, and it's... We were talking about this before we went on the podcast, Brian. What do you do when you've got a forecast cone with speci- it's their specifics yeah. is the thing. You know, uh, the location of with the cone is, you know, broad could be anywhere within that or even beyond, especially in this scenario, but specifics with the wind speeds uh, it, it really makes it difficult uh, to to convey all the uncertainty and all the unknowns and all the speed bumps that this storm could hit or miss and what that could ultimately mean for those of us in Florida. Yeah, as we sit here today, the National Hurricane Center cone, uh, with its dots in the center of it, shows the the dots show the storm going over central Florida and moving into the middle of the state. But we we just add and add and add and add verbally, but there is more uncertainty than average. So if you really were to draw a cone that represented the uncertainty, first of all, you'd get rid of those dots and you'd just expand it because there are too many things that can go differently between where the storm is now and by the time it gets up in the Bahamas and is approaching Florida, where in theory, if it is reasonably well-developed at that point, forecast should get better again. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to happen until it gets past Puerto Rico and uh, the Dominican Republic. So the middle part of the week is the big, you know, where we'll know more locally anyway or have a better picture locally uh, of what it could mean as it enters yeah, the Bahamas. Yeah, late Wednesday or early Thursday, something so, like that. This, so the questions then are, you know, and, and so much hinges on this. Does it smash into the mountains of the Dominican Republic? And if it does, that would disrupt the core. You've got a totally different outlook than if it were to uh, juke and jive between the islands and go through the Mona Passage and the core not get disrupted. Then you have a stronger storm. Or if it's further east and it hits Puerto Rico, 
get some disruption, but how much and how will it be able to uh, re-spin up on the other side of the greater Antilles? And those are questions we just can't answer right now. Because the reality is for a storm to get strong, it has to have a circular structure to it. I mean, that's the way the engine works. It's sort of like if you have one of your pistons missing in your engine, it's not going to run. There's nothing you can do to make it run. It has to have all of its parts. So uh, that's why this whole discussion of the circulation getting disrupted is so important. And it takes time to recover. So if you have a bunch of thunderstorms and they're over the warm tropical waters and the atmosphere conditions are favorable, they can start spinning pretty quickly and you can develop a storm. But if you're starting from something close to zero, that's very different than starting from something that's fairly well established because we're only going to have a couple of days between the time that it clears Puerto Rico and, and the Dominican Republic and it would get to the vicinity of Florida. So it can only do so much. Uh, but if the atmospheric conditions are, are very good and they appear to be somewhat to moderately uh, good, just looking at the long-range uh, computer models, uh, there is opportunity. But it, it's just this raft of, of issues that, that are unanswerable. Yeah. So is it a leftover disrupted core that's just a surge of moisture, or is it a strong tropical storm or a hurricane? It's, that's, that is the range of the possibilities once it gets uh, out of the Caribbean. And I showed this graphic earlier. where uh, Florida, as of this recording, uh, is included in the cone, and the, the average track error out of five-day forecast is 200 miles and that, that's about half of the, the the east coast of florida right florida's about 400 miles on the east coast correct so and that's a good forecast two-thirds of the time you know right. the, the the so one-third of the time even with you know normal forecast it could be outside of that cone and the uncertainty with this storm is certainly higher than normal so the chances of it being outside of that cone are, are certainly possible so it's just a whole lot of question marks about right. what's going to so happen. Right, so we have to get people to be patient, really, and, and try and be ready for this idea of having approximately two days' notice for this storm on what's going to happen. So there are two other issues with Dorian that come into play. One is it's very small, and therefore, if it were able to thread the needle, if it were ha able to hang together and maybe strengthen some, get organized— uh, it could thread the needle between the Dominican Republic and uh, Puerto Rico, which a bigger storm could not do because it's just not that much room. Sure. In that Mona Passage, though, there is room for Dorian. And also the east end of the Dominican Republic is flatter. So the mountains are kind of in the center part of the island. So, so there is an opportunity to do that. The other is that Dorian went over San Lucia, the island of San Lucia, in the eastern Caribbean. So now it's, it, it is in the, in the Eastern Caribbean, but the Eastern Caribbean islands that have passed over Barbados and, and St. Lucia. Well, St. Lucia is kind of mountainous, and that disrupted mm -hmm. the circulation. So now the circulation is reforming. So that wasn't forecast, and it seems to be reforming a little bit east uh, or north of where it was forecast to be. So how is that going to affect the track? That might push everything a little bit to the right, closer to Puerto Rico. We'll see, but it also makes it weaker, and weaker storms track a little differently than, than stronger storms. So bottom line is here that, that for people in Florida, this is they really paying attention to all these minute details in the Caribbean, 
is is a kind of fool's errand because it's not going to that's not what's going to make a difference the thing that's going to make a difference is what happens as it interacts with those islands or it doesn't and it gets in the bahamas for people in puerto rico all these details do count and in the dominican republic they do count but again it's unknown because it's just the storm is just reforming again after the interaction with San Lucia. So how are you going to communicate this? I'm, we're going to focus on Florida here. Uh, wh- what are you going to say, kind of as your bottom line, your take-home message uh, later on this evening with the tropical update? The bottom line is that Florida is threatened. The odds are that Florida is going to be impacted by Dorian in some fashion. But it would not surprise me if it were a hurricane, and it would not surprise me if it were a uh, essentially a tropical wave, yeah. uh, just a disturbance, uh, neither would surprise me uh, at this point. I, I wouldn't, you know, I would put even odds over a very wide range of possibilities. And the fact is, we just we can't say any more than that because a slight deviation of the track that we can't forecast makes all the difference in the world. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, that's uh, that's the bottom line on Dorian. Well, you know, this is a day by day thing, and uh, we're just going to have to see. Uh, before we uh, meet Leslie, uh, I do want to mention it was 14 years ago today that Hurricane Katrina was 200 miles west of Key West, on its way, of course, to infamy two days later in New Orleans. It had come ashore on the Dade Broward Line uh, just two days before. Right over the station. Right, yeah, right, exactly. Uh, on the 25th of uh, August, uh, the biggest impacts in uh, were in Miami-Dade, surprisingly, because normally the biggest impacts are to the right of the track, right? So, But when systems are disorganized and are just organizing, even though there were winds right barely at hurricane strength when it came ashore, uh, it was mostly significant flooding in South Dade, and at the time they were building on the 836 uh, pedestrian bridge at 97th Avenue across the expressway, and that fell over onto the expressway. I remember, wow. I remember when that happened. Went, what? So, so that it was uh, it was disruptive to say the least. What strength was it when it passed? It was Category One. It was just just was upgraded to Category One just before it came ashore. I mean, it just formed by the Bahamas. Yeah. So, I mean, it just formed as a tropical depression by the Bahamas. So this was not a follow it all the way across the Atlantic kind of uh, a situation. In fact, that whole year, 2005, the activity was in the Western Atlantic. They started in the Western Atlantic generally, and they came from there. And then, of course, people kind of forgot about Katrina here in South Florida because Wilma came along yeah. two months later, and uh, that was that. Now, for some years before Katrina, I'd seen Leslie Chapman Henderson at hurricane conferences uh, when Flash was actually a Florida organization, but it grew up into the Federal Alliance for Safe Homes. Leslie is the person who's responsible for the vision and the drive behind Flash. It really is a great organization. Ticks of this in the future? Well, I think it's a combination. There's certainly, definitely political forces driven by those who have a very short-term outlook on this problem. They may only be considering the cost of construction and the, the cost time frame associated with the price point of a house. The way we look at it is, what is the cost to the person who buys that home or who rents that home and lives in the home over time? And so when you analyze cost 
in in the two different time frames, you get two very different outcomes. And I think the other thing that's worked against us in the past is that as a society, our ability to prioritize these different types of decisions can only sometimes be as good as our recent memory. So in the instance where you know, time has gone on and nothing has happened in a place, I think it's easy to make the case, not that it's correct, but it can be easy to make the case that, oh, we don't need to spend that little bit of extra money on the extra connectors more closely spaced around the framing of a house or the upgraded impact-resistant garage door. We can save that money because we really don't have that problem here. That is exactly how the panhandle put through the loophole that was put in place when the rest of the state came on board with a stronger, more integrated code. The good news is we we did get rid of the loophole in the panhandle in 2007, but unfortunately the time period of the, the existence of that loophole kind of dovetailed with the highest burst of construction activity. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we have an inventory of homes that aren't going to be as strong um, coming out of the last two years, I'd like to think those memories will serve us well policy-wise, but time will tell. Yeah, it's interesting, Leslie. You know, it, it seems our memories are short, and uh, uh, so often people talk themselves into, oh, it never comes here, it goes other places, and then policies get made from that out of poor decision-making. It seems like every place I've ever lived, people have thought, oh, it doesn't come here until one day when it does. I do want to circle back to Hurricane Michael. Uh, when I was in Mexico Beach earlier this spring, uh, people were desperate for FEMA help, literally crying to my producer and I over uh, their desperation. These people were really suffering. Uh, they said they were promised money to get their lives back on track, but it wasn't coming. Is this inevitable, or is there a better system that you can imagine? Well, I think one of the, unfortunately, FEMA becomes the um, target of blame sometimes when things don't go well in a recovery. But I think it's really important to remember that FEMA is the power behind the recovery, but the frontline leadership of a state and a local government is responsible for calling for the declaration and leading the recovery. The Michael recovery is probably one of the most difficult that I've seen, and I've been in this role 21 years and prior to that 12 years in the insurance industry in this in this arena. And the reason for the Michael recovery being so tough is, is a confluence of things. So first of all, Michael happened at the end of a two-year burst of intense billion-dollar disasters, mostly hurricanes, but including wildfires that strained the resources from the labor and expertise resources, volunteer resources, and and the entire system, you know, including the Caribbean, was strained all at once. And that started after 10 years of relative quiet, and all of a sudden we have these hurricanes coming one after the other and then the wildfires. So the resource strain has really hit the panhandle hard. Also, Michael hit 12 different counties, some of which are our most economically challenged counties in this state. One entire industry was wiped out, the timber industry in Calhoun County, for example. So there go those jobs. So the resilience of people being able to get back on their feet and get back to work wiped out. And then on top of that, we believe, you know, the campfires in California happened right after Michael. Again, pulling on those resources 
and pulling them away. So it's just, I think it's a lot of a system problem. There's also, you know, if you think back to, I don't, you know, I was there, (laughs) Brian was there. In 1992, when Hurricane Andrew happened, it was spread out, but it was by and large one leadership team of Miami, now Miami-Dade, right? And so there was a centralized leadership impetus to lead the recovery and I think that we don't have in Michael either. So you have a very kind of a slightly, and, and it's not a fault thing, it's just the way it is, right? It's a little balkanized. You've got different counties. One bay has more affluence, and so they've got more resources. I was listening to our Florida CFO speak this summer at a, at a, at a conference where I was speaking too, and he was describing the challenge. Take Mexico Beach, okay? Mexico Beach's annual budget before Michael was around $2 million a year. It's a very tiny, tiny hamlet, right? Their debris bill for collection of all of the damage is $24 million. So FEMA has the authority, and it's all law, so it's not as if they can just change it. They have to follow the law and the rules. By law, there's a percentage of support they can provide to Mexico Beach, but Mexico Beach has to come up with their share. So the state is working with FEMA on how to do that. Does the the state serve as a bank to help Mexico Beach and then they pay it back later? Well, how do you pay that back? You have constituents who live there. They pay property taxes, but how many homes are even there right now? So it's just super complicated recovery from Michael, and it's going to take a long, long time. And the scary thing is that that reality of having rural counties uh, that are uh, to some degree economically disadvantaged or just they're not rich people, uh, uh, you know, exists in many, many places. Uh, in, in When Andrew hit South Florida, most of that damage was in one big county, the biggest county in the state of Florida and the richest county in the state of Florida. So that uh, does make a difference, not to mention just the profile of having something hit the Miami area versus having it hit uh, the panhandle of Florida, even though Panama City, it's not like it's nowhere, but it's just not as well known. I I think that comes uh, into play. Right. And so the key to all of this is that the one thing within the power of the local and state government to do to to set the resilience destiny on the right path is to build it right the first time. And that starts with good modern model building codes. And so anybody who turns away from that is setting that community on a course for failure Mm -hmm. because eventually something's going to happen. But that's why building it right is so critical, and that's why we've redoubled our efforts to bring transparency to the issue because the United States of America, we should have building codes of the highest value and quality in every community, and we're just not there yet. Leslie, when the building code uh, went into effect here after Hurricane Andrew, it was late 1994, there were advertisements on the radio that uh, were running and saying you could beat the code for this new <laughs> housing uh, development. So there, there is a process, but here in South Florida, people accept the fact now that they spend a little more money and they get very strong Homes. Let me let me ask you about um, the program that you have you've had for the last few years called Hurricane Strong. It's really kind of an umbrella for a variety of things and had uh, kind of a posture related to it, uh, and it was uh, a lot of fun. Tell us about that. 
Sure. So Hurricane Strong, one of the things, again, we're always taking a temperature because we hear from from homeowners and and our consumer targets all the time. And what was happening before the storm started occurring with more frequency is we were developing a pretty big case of amnesia in the U.S. on hurricanes. Also, people were becoming adults who had no hurricane experience. And then the hurricane um, advice community was getting a little... um, disorganized and people were tuning out. So in all of our projects, we'd like to start with some type of research or taking a temperature or different kind of way to get a sense of what people were feeling. What they told us was, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know where to begin. It's becoming a hassle. And we said, okay, let's create a program that has a very discreet path for people. It's not you know, we, we try to resist giving people more than they need at the time. We can't turn these people into hurricane experts. They just need to have a recipe to take charge of this themselves. So Hurricane Strong, we said, let's, let's make it slightly fun and less oppressive. Let's streamline the messaging into some buckets, and let's see if we can't put people in a place where this isn't actually onerous, but it's actually desirable that they become Hurricane Strong. So we did a lot of work with partners, including um, people like you, Brian, and our uh, meteorological community, and said, let's, let's talk about this. So we, we have five key messages for the original program, very simple to get people thinking about, one, personal safety, do you live in an evacuation zone, and answering those questions about where you're going to be. Two is preparedness, which to us is the kit the communication plan, the things that are going to make you comfortable and keep you off the road when the real threat is upon you so you're not rushing out at the last minute in a panic, right? Just the things we should be doing right now. Financial security is part three. It's all about the insurance checkup, understanding what you have, making sure you have flood insurance, knowing what your deductible is, and taking your phone and going around your house and creating a home inventory. The fourth part is damage prevention. This gets to the root of what we've been talking about with building codes, understanding what you have, how you can make it better, and all of your options there. And the fifth part of Hurricane Strong I really love is community service. So, okay, now that you're ready, what do you have to offer others? You might just be able to help your next-door neighbor, perhaps they're elderly, and they need help, you know, connecting with their family or putting up their shutters. But everyone has something to offer, and when we think along these lines, then we're getting out of the way. When the emergency management community, when, when those that can, when we take care of ourselves, we allow the first responders to go and help those that can't help themselves. So Hurricane Strong, um, has a fun part because we need the future generation involved, and it involves the pose. I think we're actually at the college football um, hall of fame because I think the Heisman Trophy must have spurred this idea. But if you do the Hurricane Strong pose, and you could see it online, and we have had many dignitaries join us in doing the pose, you're actually putting your arms in the shape of a northern hemisphere storm. And the Twitter hashtag Hurricane Strong has become very popular, and and I think at this point it's fair to say that when people are messaging about pre-hurricane readiness activities, they're using the hashtag Hurricane Strong because we're seeing, I think we have something upwards of 60,000 individual tweets 
using the hashtag Hurricane Strong. Um, during the kickoff of the campaign this year, we had the White House and and like President Clinton and others all using it, and it's just giving us an umbrella for this conversation about how to get ready and how to help each other. Um, there is an interesting spinoff to the program. We started, of course, targeting, like we always do, consumers, homeowners, and renters, but a community came forward and said, well, wait a minute, what's the definition of a hurricane-strong community? So we worked with them, it was Leon County, Florida, and we collected up the things that we judge a community by, which are existing objective measurements. The building code score, just like we talked about. The floodplain management scoring that already exists. The engaged leadership of the community. Is the business community ready? What are they doing with the schools? And then, of course, NOAA has a great program called Storm Ready which includes a lot of alerting and different types of criteria. So if the community had already earned that, that would, um, in our estimation, make them hurricane strong. So we created it's a great, the It's a great program. I mean, it has so many aspects to it. The, the, the tricky thing is, and what we hope happens, is people can take it down to their level, right, where, where right. it causes them to take action. Yep, and Leon County, followed by Miami-Dade County, Chatham County, Georgia, we have about 10 in the hunt right now from New York to Hilton Head and back down to Florida. So I think this whole idea of being hurricane strong follows the idea that you're not, if you, if you do well in a hurricane, it isn't luck. It's things we do beforehand right. that yep. set it up. Yeah, one of the, you know, getting things to stick, to get an idea to stick in communication, what you're trying to say for it to be perceived is one of the greatest challenges. And one of the great lines related to weather safety is turn around, don't drown. I think everybody's heard that. And I don't think you get enough credit for it. How was that message developed? Oh, thank you so much. So like everything good that we do, it's a partnership. Um, I was at a weather service uh, leadership training and I was doing some um, work with them, doing some lecturing, and one of the warning coordination meteorologists, Hector Guerrero, who's down in um, the Texas coast, had been at a round table because Texas leads the nation typically, and unfortunately, in deaths from people walking or driving into water. And Hector relayed the idea that a fire chief had said, well, I think we should just tell people to turn around. And then at the tabletop, they all looked at each other and said, right, and don't drown. So the idea was there, but it was just there. And what we did is we kind of applied our formula to it. And we created the slogan. Um, some really great artwork was done by a weather service graphic artist. And then we decided we were going to take it out and start in Texas. We, did, we put together some funding to get billboards together, and we started promoting it. I don't even know how to tell you this, but there's even a song now, Turn Around, Don't Drown. Mm -hmm. I went to a tropical weather conference in um, South Padre this year, and the band was there that uh, wrote the song, and they played it. But it's become a, a, a reminder. It's kind of like in the fire safety community, you know, stop, drop, and roll. Turn Around, Don't Drown has, has become something that people share. We're very proud of that because as much as we're really, really sad to see people lose their lives. We know that many, many people turn away from flooded waters because they've heard that. So that's, that's one of the things that um, 
we, we think about a lot, too. We were really proud of it. Yeah, that's a lasting legacy. So just one more thought. If, if somebody is a broadcaster, I know we have a number of meteorologists and broadcasters who listen to this podcast, or there's some part of another organization, how can they get on the flash train and, and be part of this and be aware of, of what you're doing and maybe amplify it? How do, how do they do that? Well, we have a lot of information on our website, which we're going to be launching an even more expanded website soon at flash.org. Um, we also work directly and are thrilled to work directly with people like you guys because you have the audience and the listening. One of the things we can assure all of your peers is that our information is vetted and backed by the best academic and research minds in the United States. So we're kind of your speed to market. If we're saying it, it's correct. And so we can provide information on everything from, you know, any kind of situation and dispel myths. I think that's probably the first place that people should start is dispelling myths. In a tornado, one of the myths is you can't be safe above ground. Wrong. Tornado safe rooms, properly certified, can save you in up to 250 miles per hour. So we have a wealth of information like that, and we'd love to share it, and we can customize it. Uh, we do have a lot of users in the um, broadcast community, and they send us examples. Go tapeless is a great one, probably something we should be talking about right now because masking tape is the last thing you want to waste time on before a hurricane, yet time and People time again People still do it, it. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they do. All right, Leslie, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on, on your uh, your hard work and your great ideas, and, and we'll do our best to uh, support them here. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so very much. Luke, they really do have great programs that they've came up, come up with there at Flash, wouldn't you say? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the I really like the Hurricane Strong, and, you know, the— it kind of always goes back to it's not it's not for me it's not going to to have something that says hey look this isn't going to work no code no confidence uh good luck good luck to you. you this is what you need to do these are the facts uh i think that carries a lot of weight and it can save a lot of people a lot of heartache should the event unfold like i had seen earlier in mexico beach where these yeah. codes were where they were weaker yes they were yes entirely too weak for the natural environment i always say build to the to the requirements of the natural environment and people end up better and the fact is we learned it here when the new building code went into effect the, the pushback on it was nobody's going to buy houses that are so expensive the way you want to make them you know you want to make them too strong well in the last 20 years they've done nothing but build houses here mm -hmm. <laughs> right and they built them to that code so it's a fallacious argument because the fact is you don't need to increase the price of the house. You might have to replace the marble floors with tile floors to keep the price the same if you put on the stronger roof and put in the stronger garage door and the windows and, and so forth. Or you might have to make the house a little bit smaller, 5% smaller, something like that, mm -hmm. to make the difference in, in cost. So it, it's, it's fallacious to say that people will not buy strong houses. And once that becomes part of the culture, people won't buy weak houses. Sure. <laughs> right? It's a big so, selling point. Right. Buy my strong home. You don't have to worry about it. Right. So uh, that's where we need to get to. Right? And, yeah. and so that's what they're trying to do with No Code, No Confidence. And, and uh, you know, I wish there were an easy way to get that in everybody's mind. Because if, if all the 
home buyers and all the builders and all the politicians and the voters were on the same page about that, then it's it's kind of a no-brainer, seems like, but you have to get people aligned and thinking about it. It seems in South Florida that we, we have a good deal of that going our way. There's some good momentum. W- would you agree, Brian? I mean, even today, I know I know it was big after Andrew for, for quite some time, but that's been a little while back. Then we had Irma, of course, but Irma, and we've had Wilma, but, but it, it seems like, let's just say the selling point of having a strong home. I would imagine here in South Florida, that's a pretty good selling point. More people would be apt here. It seems like it's part of the culture, much more so than a big chunk of the rest of the country is that right Would you agree? well also the insurance uh there's a lot of thing wrong things wrong with insurance but one of the good things that's happened is that you really do get a big discount if your home is strong if your home meets miami-dade or the broward county code standards which are essentially the same code mm-hmm. and it's stronger than the rest of the state so the miami-dade code is known around the world as the definitive hurricane code and uh, and so so yes, uh, in, in here we we learned in Hurricane Andrew, and we actually learned it. I mean, it's it's really an exceptional example of government working, is saying that we're not going to have that happen again, where houses are going to come apart. Perfectly good, you know, cement block houses are going to come apart because they're not connected right. At the, the roof isn't connected to the to the walls, and that's and, and you know the connectors cost a dime a piece or something. It's craziness to not require that to be part of the construction. As I look, you know, I've, I've, I live in a house that was built in 67, um, and I, I, a lot of the houses in my community were built in the upper 60s. Uh, I, you know, as I shopped around, my house is a rental. As I shop around, I don't see a lot of postings of this house has been upgraded to code or anything like that, though. So I, I take that and I, I look. And I think, how how much is this ingrained? You know, if 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 this truly is a community where you know the the higher code is going to help sell your house and it's part of the culture, I would think I would see more of that. So that's one thing. As I look back at it from the other way, maybe there's there's still quite a bit of room for improvement. Too. Well, there's a lot of work to do, and especially in Broward and North Dade, because they didn't have Andrew. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, nothing like having. <laughs> An event like Andrew to make you uh, acutely aware of how strong your house is uh, in the future, right? And and talking about Andrew, the the biggest lesson I think from Andrew was that events can happen in the world. In other words, an incredible hurricane that exceed the local and the state's ability to deal with it. If there's no infrastructure left, then nothing can happen. So in Homestead, for example, the city government just didn't really exist. In Florida City, it didn't exist at all. In Homestead, they lost their police uh, vehicles. And so they were dependent on Miami-Dade County. Well, Miami-Dade County is a big place and just didn't have the resources to respond as quickly as people needed. So what we learned in Andrew is the only entity in our culture and in in this country that can respond to a situation like that that comes with communications and food and housing and guns is the military Hmm. you know the system needs to accept that uh, as a reality and i don't think we fully have uh, talking about the michael situation they didn't have all that social disorder that we had after andrew Uh, it was a smaller place and it wasn't as totally devastated as South Dade was uh, after Andrew. But uh, anyway, it's interesting that we didn't uh, we didn't actually 
learn that uh, that lesson fully because there's a lot of discussion about whether the military could have helped. Well, the answer is yes, they could have, and it would have alleviated a lot of pain in that first week or two. Yeah, it was, what, six days in where the tide kind of turned and the chaos and anarchy started to settle down? Was that In Andrew. In Andrew, it took six days. Yes. yes. The sixth night people could sleep. So it's it's hard to— uh, I just can't imagine, yeah. you know? Yeah. I just can't. Really, really uh, amazing. Well, next week, we're going to have a couple of really great authors uh, on with us. One is Willie Dry, and Willie has a new edition of his book, Storm of the Century, the Labor Day Hurricane of 1935, out. Uh, he's going to talk about what's new about the book. I mean, the, first, the old one, uh, the previous one, I shouldn't say the old one, the previous one came out in 2002. And you know what? He has more information now about what really happened in 1935, and also he's added uh, Wilma not Wilma, Irma, to the book, which which affected many of the same areas in the Keys, but was a very uh, different kind of storm. So that's Willie Dry. He'll be on next week. And Les Stanford will be on as well. And Les wrote a book called The Last Train to Paradise. And The Last Train to Paradise is about the Flagler Railroad, which was the train from uh, Miami to Key West. And the 1935 hurricane was the end of the Flagler Railroad. So that's the connection between the two. But also in building the railroad, they dealt with hurricanes in 1906, 1909, and 1910 that were really intrinsic to the story of building a railroad between Miami and uh, Key West. So Les is a local guy, and uh, he'll be on as well next week. If you have uh, something you'd like us to talk about on the, the podcast, you can send us an email at weatherpod at wplg.com, weatherpod at wplg.com. And uh, we'd uh, love to hear from you. So that's it for this week. Uh, this week is going to be all about Hurricane Dorian. We'll see you on uh, Local Tropical 10. Storm Dorian. Uh, Hope, hopefully it's not a hurricane. Yeah. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Hope that didn't just jinx us. Yeah. Uh, tropical Storm Dorian, yes. If uh, Anyway, we'll see you on uh, Television South Florida on uh, Local 10. Of course, you can actually watch Local 10 News on uh, online on Local10.com. And, of course, we'll see you online, on Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, Instagram, on pretty much everything else. So until next week, for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. Have a good week, everybody.